Hi folks, welcome again to another episode of Pro Football in the 1970s. I'm your host, Joe Zagorski. Now, thanks to the Sports History Network, a signed copy of my new book, The 2003-Yard Odyssey, The Juice, The Electric Company, and an Epic Run for a Record, will be given away to one lucky fan. It's all about the 1973 Buffalo Bills. Please check out the Sports History Network online for details on how you can win a free copy of my new book on the 1973 Buffalo Bill. Thanks a lot for listening in to today's episode, folks. Look forward to chatting with you again soon in the future. Take care. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The Rose Bowl. The game that inspired the college football bowl season has a long and storied history. The stadium itself is 100 years old, and in celebration of it, Pigskin Dispatch is assembling some of the top historians and authors to share the memories, people, and events that make the granddaddy of them all the special game that it is. Enjoy this Rose Bowl memory from pigskindispatch.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And we are staring down that portal to some more great Rose Bowl history. And uh, we have our friend Dana Auguster from Historically Speaking Sports with us, the great podcast here on Sports History Network. Dana, welcome back to the Pigpen. Hey, man. Thank you for having me. Glad to be back here in the Pigpen. Hey, Dana, you know, you really got the juices flowing. Uh, last time you were on, you talked about the 1966 Rose Bowl, UCLA, Michigan State had us all fired up on that. And uh, today you're going to talk about another UCLA game where they played in the Rose Bowl. And this one happened a decade later, and uh, we are sure excited to hear about it. Ten years later, but it seemed like the, the situation never really changed much because in 66, the... Bruins were 14-point underdogs. Ten years later, they're back in the Rose Bowl. And what guests, believe it or not, 14-point underdogs again, but this time against against Ohio State and legendary coach Woody Hayes. Yeah, he Woody Hayes was a very formidable coach. He's you know right up there in the, that that era of being one of the the you know top coaches. You know probably with uh, you know Paul Bear Bryant and Paterno and and some of the other ones right in there. But uh, legendary coaches with big time schools and, and great programs and UCLA. You know slouch themselves a, a great team that year as well. Uh, absolutely, it was uh, talking about. Woody Hayes, they this was their fourth consecutive Rose Bowl appearance. And wow. they were their fourth consecutive Rose Bowl appearance, led by, of course, the two-time Heisman winner, Archie Griffin, who was became the first player to be to play to start in four straight Rose Bowls. So that was that that's an accomplishment. The only other person to do that was Brian Cushing of University of Southern California. Um, but uh yeah, I mean, and then you look at that team. That Woody Hayes team, of course, you know, three yards and cloud of dust. And that was their MO. You have Griffin, 
who's a running back, but you also have a bruising fullback, Pete Johnson, who was who ended up playing in the in the NFL with the Bengals. Um, and then you had their quarterback, Cornelius Green, who was an outstanding, outstanding another quarterback that doesn't really get a lot of notoriety in this day and age, but he was tall, he was athletic, and he had his, his strong arm. He could throw the ball a country mile, but Again, it's Woody Hayes, and they didn't really throw the ball that much. But then again, when you have those two bulls behind you in the backfield, why throw it? You know, especially when you have a two-time Heisman winner in your in your backfield. So that was Ohio State. UCLA, on the other hand, coached by in his second season, Dick Vermeil. And a lot of people don't realize that before he went with the Eagles and before he won a Super Bowl with the with the St. Louis Rams, he was he started off in as 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 an assistant under Tommy Prothrow and became was elevated to head coach and the 1975 season which was only his second year as head coach of the Bruins. Um you had a quarterback with John Shira who later played in late who played later played for the for for Meal with the Eagles, but as a safety and had a long career actually in Canada playing receiver. But he came into the NFL as a, as a defensive back. But on this day, he was UCLA's quarterback, which was interesting that you're going to make that transition from a big time school's quarterback to a safety in the NFL, which is not strange, but is, is unusual. Um, and then you have the running back, Wendell Tyler, who was uh, who played long time for the Los Angeles Rams? Stayed in town, played for the Rams, you know. And you also have a few other guys that that made big contributions. Uh, another a receiver named Wally Henry, who came up huge in this game for the for the Bruins. And so, but again, fourteen point underdogs, you know, that year. And another strange, interesting thing about Vermeil, going back to him. He coached under some legends. He coached under John Ralston at Stanford. He also he was worked under Ch- uh, George Allen, the aforementioned Tommy Prothrow, and also coached under Chuck Knox. So he had a great coaching pedigree heading into the game as a head coach. Yeah, he's a very interesting uh, individual. Of course, uh, just voted in the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, last year, this past summer. And, uh, you know, had, but he, like you said, he had a very interesting collegiate uh, career going up through the ranks and uh, some of the teams he coached for and players he coached, uh, coached up and uh, other coaches that he came out of their, their coaching tree. And, uh, well, he really made a, a great name for himself in the NFL. And really, this is sort of uh, his MO, though. Usually, in you know, you said he was in the second year with UCLA, he has him, you know, in some playing a big time football game in the Rose Bowl, uh, just like he did, you know, with the Philadelphia Eagles. It took him a year or two, gets them up into the Super Bowl. The Rams, you know, he's there three years, he gets them into uh, winning a Super Bowl. I believe losing another one and uh, you know, Kansas city, he had them up and, and coming to when he was with them. So he really knew how to get his uh, program off of in like uh, two to three years after he started. Seems like that was his, his modus operandi. That's right. I mean, it, it, and again, that's what he did with UCLA and that UCLA team. Um, they actually, another thing that they had in common in 1966 is that they had played their Rose bowl opponent earlier that season. They had, hosted Ohio State at the Coliseum 
and the Buckeyes ended up winning that game 42 to 20. But being prophetic as he was, Woody Hayes told them, you're going to see this team again in the Rose Bowl. Just be ready. You're going to see this team again. And sure enough, January 1st, 1976, there they were. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, so we have two powerhouse teams again, pretty well balanced, uh, coming at each other, played each other earlier in the season. Uh, you know, lopsided win by Ohio State, but uh, you know, Woody Hayes a little bit nervous about him. So tell us what happened uh, during the game. Well, Ohio State dominated the first half. If you watch the go back and watch the game, UCLA didn't get their first first down until late in the second quarter. So it was the defenses that dom- it was Ohio State's defense and the ground attack of Ohio State that dominated the game. However, they scored a field goal on their opening possession, and that was it. They didn't score any more. You know, they didn't score any more in the first half. And it was mostly because of the of the of the of the of UCLA's front line. That was just having their way. And plus two crucial turnovers, two interceptions by Cornelius Green that really slowed down any progress that Ohio State made during that first half. And it was it was three nothing Ohio State at halftime, in which I know. Woody Hayes was just tearing the paint off the walls at halftime. Uh, you could just about imagine that. Okay. They, like I said, UCLA didn't register first, their first first down until midway, until late in the second half. And, and they held Griffin in check. And Green was actually the bulk of their offense with his scrambling. But a fumble and, and two interceptions really cost them in that first half. Then, and then the third quarter, the Bruins scored on their first possession, scored a field goal to make the score three to three. And then they decided, Vermeil decided, we got to open up the offense. We can't go toe to toe running with these guys because they were basically an option type. They ran the Veer, you know, which is hard to believe with UCLA, with their passing and their history of offense. Their main offense was the Veer. And it was working with Shira at quarterback, pitching it off the window, Tyler. And in the second, in their second possession of the second half, they decided they had started getting some success with the Veer, with the Veer option play, passing it off the window, Tyler. And then all of a sudden, they threw a play action pass and they fired it to Wally Henry on a 16-yard touchdown pass to give UCLA his first touchdown of the game. They, they, however, they missed the extra point. Later on in the third quarter, Shira finds finds Henry again, this time 67 yards. Basically what happened was he, they, he basically ran a, a slant right in the middle of the Ohio State defense and outran everybody. You know, Wally Henry was listed on the UCLA roster as maybe set maybe 5'11". I doubt if he was that. Because he was a really sharp, but he was so speedy. And he just carved up the uh, Ohio State's defensive secondary and rushed and ran 67 yards for a touchdown. And I think at that moment, Woody Hayes panicked, I believe, because they started to throw the ball. I mean, throw the ball like every down instead of just going back to their offense, going back to what they got them there. Woody Hayes, I believe, panicked and started to throw the ball down the field. And, and that was like in three and out, three and out, three and out, three and out. For, and then UCLA, of course, took advantage of that. They're up. Um, 
They're up 16. They're up 16 to three. Pete Johnson finally scores for them in the fourth quarter to make the score 16 to 10. But they went back to the passing game. And of course, nothing happened. They went three and out, three and out again. And the UCLA scored their final touchdown, 54-yard run by Wendell Tyler right up the middle. And just and he made this outstanding cut right on the sideline, right around the 15-yard line, this, this real cut toward the inside that made about maybe three Ohio State Buckeye defenders miss. And he just ran, ran into the end zone with the, high, with the ball lofted up in the air for the touchdown to pretty much to ice the game. And... You know, the game ended on another green interception. So, and that was, and, and that ended up being the final, you know, uh, 23 to 10. Wow. So UCLA put, put the wood to him a little bit. And uh, like you said, Woody Hayes panicking a little bit, maybe got a little bit frustrated with that uh, running game, not uh, churning out the yardage that he was used to thinking maybe UCLA had his number and uh, knew how to play that running game possibly, huh? I think what happened, I, I really think that that's what really what happened because the running game wasn't working as he thought it should have been working in the first half. So he might have thought that maybe he could have changed the game up and tried to go to a more passing game, which was really, if you look back on the Ohio State Buckeyes in the 70s, they really didn't throw the ball like talking about. It was all, I mean, when you, again, when you have Griffin and Johnson back behind you, you just run the ball. You know what I'm saying? You, you run the ball and you, and, and for, for whatever reason, they decided not to. Huh, that's a, that is really uh, strange that the, yeah, when you have the backs like that with the, you know, Johnson and Archie Griffin, I mean, I don't care if your running game is not working. Uh, you always you have to go back it. to that. Yeah. That's your bread and butter for, you know, decades for the Ohio State offense, and especially that year when uh, two great stellar backs that they had. So that's really surprising that uh, they wouldn't do that. So, so what uh, happened in the aftermath? Did, did, was there national championship implications with this game? Yes, it was because Ohio State was number one. And with them losing, all of the eyes turned to the Orange Bowl, which was Oklahoma against uh, Michigan in the Orange Bowl that year and Oklahoma ended up winning that game uh 14 to 6 and Oklahoma with the Dewey with the with the Selman brothers when won the national championship well it was wow. awarded the national championship you know, with the Selman brothers and, and coach and coach Switzer and you know that that group over there from Norman they ended up winning the national championship yeah, they they were spectacular, especially when, when the, the Selmans, all three of them were uh, great, great uh, collegiate players and went on to have some pretty decent uh, NFL careers, too. So, you know, just uh, great players there. And of course, you know, we know Coach Switzer, what, what he did later on at Oklahoma and also with the Cowboys in the NFL. So, That's uh, right. so once again, UCLA is a spoiler and uh, turns the tables on and changes the national championship uh, uh, title to go to a, a different team than what was number one going in. That's right. And, and once again, I mean, it, maybe that's just our MO, you know, as far as like a UCLA fan and stuff like that, when you think of college football in California, of course, the first thing you think of is USC, you know, with they, with people in LA, UCLA fans, that, 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 that team from over there, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that's been, 
UCLA's football program's MO. Now, the basketball program is a little bit different, but the football program has always played, it's been like the little brother to USC. And in this case, you know, they were on top this particular day. Very interesting. Well, well, thank you very much for sharing uh, that, that great Rose Bowl story and another great game uh, for the UCLA Bruins and uh, you know, another upset win in the Rose Bowl. And, uh, you know, Dana, you have some great uh, social media that, that you put out. Uh, maybe you could uh, share where people can find you and follow you uh, on some of the social media you're using and, and what exactly you know, some of your, your posts are like. Well, I mean, I'm on Twitter, um, which is historically SP in the number two. That's on Twitter. And I try to, I try, I'm not successful at this all the time because of life and work and stuff like that. But because this isn't my only gig, um, I, um, I try to post something like what I call today in sports history. And I include like, um, what happened on this particular day in history, whether it, and it, 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 I, I'm not, pretty much into one sport. I'm into all sports. I mean, I did one today, you know, uh, about, about, about boxing. I, I did, you know, I, I, I do all sports and I try to stay on top of that. Try to do one, at least one or two posts a day. I try, you know, but of course I'm not always successful, but uh, to be honest, but, um, but yeah, I think I get a great thrill out of that. I get a, I got a lot of people that, that anxiously await what I post and stuff like that, which is really cool. And it's also kind of feeds my own, um, thirst for sports knowledge, I guess you could call it. Yeah. You, your, your posts are great. Um, they bring back some great memories and really, uh, turn a lot of excitement and you, I see you get a lot of comments on them and, you know, get people pumped up about some of the great things you do. And you end up using some great graphics and some images, usually from the event that you're talking about that, uh, also like just bring some, uh, you know, great nostalgic, uh, flair to them. So, we appreciate you doing that and uh, you know, preserving sports history. Oh man, thanks. I mean, that, that's the, that's been a passion of mine since I was a little kid. So, you know, having an outlet like Twitter and having an outlet like a podcast, you know, it just kind of feeds that. You know, my own personal, my own personal thing, right? You know, it's just the way that I am, and it's something that I've always, always loved ever since I was a little kid. All right. Well, Dana uh, Auguster, thank you very much for joining us here, celebrating this uh, great Rose Bowl history. Uh, again, you can find Dana on Sports History Network or your favorite podcast provider. He is the Historically Speaking podcast with Dana Auguster. Dana, thank you very much for sharing today with us. Thank you, man. Thank you for letting me come on. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. A special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. 
And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.